sounds mechanical, like a poorly oiled piece of machinery. Well, that could be the first question. What kind of animal is that? Oh. Like, as in what group? You're saying it's not necessarily a frog? I'm saying it's something. Well, definitely going to be a hepatofauna type beast. Oh, but it could be a complete is, red herring. It's not even a frog. If it's not an amphibian, then it's, it's probably not an aquatic turtle, otherwise you wouldn't have been so insulted with my suggestion that they could meow. If I could have found one, I would have found an audio of a turtle meowing, but I don't think there is one on the internet. I reckon if you're just catching me out and suggesting that it isn't an amphibian, then it turns out to be an amphibian. I'm going to be bitterly disappointed by this this whole ruse. But People can't see, but I'm sort of nervously shifting my glance around. <laughs> That's completely thrown me for a loop. <laughs> okay, sorry, sorry. It is an amphibian. Oh. I was like wrapping my brain. It's like it could be some sort of small type of weird crocodilian. <laughs> don't wrap your brain. Some sort mate. of arboreal crocodile. I don't even know. <laughs> okay, no, I'm going. It's a lesser chirping frog from northeast Nepal. It's about two and a half centimeters long and uh, is a medium brown with orange eyes. Is that even a real frog? Is there a real frog called that or not? <laughs> the real question you should be asking is, does it matter? No, I suppose not. <laughs> I suppose not. And in fact, you're wrong. It is in fact, I'll tell you what, I'll give you a clue, Ben. It will, you'll definitely get it from this clue, actually. It's a frog which in the past has had something of a relationship with expectant mothers. Oh, so Claude, African Claude Frog. Xenopus, yes. uh, something being with an L that I can't pronounce. Beginning with L and ending in Evis. Xenopus Levis. Oh, classic. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, and as you say, it's well, the African Claude Frog. Widely so. transported frogs in all of history. Yeah, absolutely. So it's really widespread all over Africa, but it's been introduced to a lot of places, even the UK. Hmm. As a result of its kind of close association with people, because there used to be a pregnancy test that used, you know, there's something like if you wee on one of the frogs, it will start ovulating or something like that, um, if you're pregnant. But yeah, really cool little guy. I mean, they're completely aquatic, so they live their whole lives in the water. They've been kind of suggested that they can be used as like a way to control mosquito populations. Oh, yes. I'm <laughs> Considering last episode, we were just talking about cane toads and things and the uh, unwanted side effects of yeah I'm sure they do yeah. help with mosquito populations in places where they're meant to be so that, yeah. that, I, that I wouldn't be yeah wouldn't be surprised with yeah. oh well, apparently they do leave the water they leave the water when there's a drought um, <laughs> because there drought, is no water <laughs> yeah but they don't just die is what I mean like they're not just like oh well I guess that's it guys no water, time to just give up. Yeah. If a drought occurs, they'll just burrow into the drying mud. And care to guess how long they can survive for without food? Ooh, two months. It's actually a year. What? Yep. And they will eat all sorts of things, including fish, crustaceans, insects, even other frogs. And they'll also scavenge on the corpses of dead animals. Wow. Including mammals. What? Yeah. A year? Yeah, and they can also survive in high water salinity. So they're just super tough, basically. They're just really they're hardcore, tough yeah. frogs. Yeah, they're hardcore. And their little tadpoles are quite cool. They're sort of light brown with a dark brown stripe, mm -hmm, not mm -hmm. like your normal 
just plain tadpole. And yeah, I would. I think the mechanical nature of that call that you picked up on is probably the the most striking thing about it. Yeah, it would be nuts to actually be there hearing them call like that. Um, it would be cool. Fascinating. So yeah, the African clawed frog Xenopus levis. Before we get stuck in, I'm Tom Major and co-hosting with me is Ben Marshall and this is Herpetological Highlights, the podcast about reptile and amphibian science. And today, our little dipping our toe in the herpetological scientific literature is going to be on the subject of bearded dragons, actually, which are universally popular little lizards. This I paper feel like is everybody's by met a bearded dragon at some point. If you're listening to this podcast, the chances are you've met a bearded dragon. I've they're pretty ubiquitous. Yep. My cousin Christy used to have one. He was called Chester. He was named after the lead singer of Linkin Park. And he was a little dude. I used to look after <laughs> him when they went on holiday. And uh, a voracious predator of locusts. He did not take any prisoners. He was very much a sort of chilled out guy. Chester would sit on your shoulder. You could walk around the house. But then any sign of there's a locust around, he just flips a switch. Very nice little character. Um, but you know, nice knobbly skin, spiky little chin. They're just adorable. Mm -hmm. And for that reason, this paper's a bit sad, but this is the paper. It's by Contador Kelsall, Mout, Story, Hose and French, published in 2022. And this is entitled Sublethal Pesticide Exposure Influences Behaviour, but not Condition, in a Widespread Australian Lizard, published in conservation physiology which is probably not a journal we've touched on before which i was about to say the same yeah so like you say potentially slightly of a downer but crazy important and kind of fascinating and on a species that a lot of people probably care quite deeply about yes yes so the bearded dragon the central bearded dragon pagona viticeps it's a very common arid zone agamid uh, it has a wide habitat so it sort of lives in, it only lives in Australia. It likes semi-arid areas, but it's pretty chill about what specific habitat is there, as long as it's semi-arid. <laughs> they like dry forests, eucalyptus forests, pine woodlands, scrublands, and various other desert habitats. These are all good and choices they, for the... Uh, yeah, and to go along with their kind of habitat generalism, they're also dietary, quite general. They'll eat insects, but they'll also eat vegetable matter and plants and that kind of stuff so they're omnivorous creatures but their little simple lives in australia are not as simple as they could be ben because where these bearded dragons live as where most animals live in the world over human insist on growing crops to provide food and where people grow crops they tend to spray pesticides to kill the bugs that want to eat those crops and those pesticides are often applied in australia particularly by planes They'll come down, they'll fly low, and they'll squirt their deadly insect-killing goo all over the crops. And obviously that's a little bit of an indiscriminate method if you're sort of raining down pesticides from the air. And inevitably, those pesticides end up landing on insects. They also end up landing on plants. And once they've landed on those things, obviously they have a direct effect on the things they land on. But beyond that, if something comes along and eats something that's had the pesticide land on it, they themselves could become intoxicated with that pesticide. Mm -hmm. And then the sort of fear is that that pesticide has knock-on impacts for, you know, unintended non-target species like our little bearded dragons here. Yes. But interestingly, reptiles, when, you know, because in Australia, you've got to do risk assessments for your pesticide spraying. Reptiles only appear in 2% of those risk assessments, despite being 
pretty much everywhere in Australia. Mm-hmm. I mean, my impression of Australia, having never never actually been there, is that you can't really walk anywhere without bumping into a lizard or a snake. <laughs> Truly a, a paradise on earth. Yeah. But so they wanted to kind of simulate what would happen when the bearded dragons ate insects or plant matter with pesticides on them. So the authors went around. They were either walking around or driving around and they were spotting bearded dragons. And when they spot them, they grab them up and they stick a radio tag on them as well so as an accelerometer. Find them again. And the accelerometer exactly. to record their sort of activity. It's basically just giving the authors a proxy for when these guys are active and how active they are when they are. Exactly. And alongside that, what they did was they would also, they had three groups of bearded dragons and one group were getting dosed with one pesticide. Another group were getting dosed with a different pesticide in very small doses. Crucially, this this was very small sublethal doses. They're not looking to like poison them. They're just looking to see what happens if they have a little bit. Yeah, super key point, because there had been a previous study looking at these pesticides' impacts on animals and how basically their point was that a lot of the cases when they're doing these lab-based studies, they're using sort of exaggerated dosages because there's no point sort of doing a study with a dose so low that you can't tell the difference between no dose and dose because, you know, there's nothing to see. So those tend to be a bit exaggerated. The whole point with this one, they were using wild bearded dragons. They're not taking them back into captivity. They're, you know, they're free roaming. They're free to live their lives, their little bearded dragon lives. But that the dosages are also something more appropriate for this sort of scenario. So, you know, you think about the amount of being pesticide being sort of deposited on crops you then think about how much of that's actually reaching plants or insects that the bearded dragons are going to have access to and also how much plant and bug slash insect matter are these bearded dragons eating over a set period of time and then you sort of got down to this point of okay this is the sort of level of pesticide uh, concentrations quantity volume whatever that the bearded dragons are actually going to get in a pr- more realistic ecological sort of context, yeah? Yeah. You know, they, they yeah. go into quite, realistically detail how small. They, quite good detail how they get down to those numbers. Yeah, but the crucial thing is that these are levels of pesticides that the dragons could like realistically expect to receive by eating a spray right. insect. precisely, yeah. And so what they measured, they like you said, they had the radio transmitter and the accelerometer on there, and that allowed them to measure their kind of uh, daily activity. And not only that, they also were measuring their like body condition and some biomarkers of exposure. They, they were measuring their like blood hemoglobin levels as mm-hmm. well. Yep. But to be honest, that never ended up being re- re- relevant. They didn't notice a difference in body condition or hemoglobin levels that could be attributed to the pesticides. But I mean, that is relevant because it's good. That's quite a nice good. aside, is that the body condition wasn't affected or didn't appear to be affected by this yeah no but what they were doing they got the original they took the dragons they tested them initially and then they gave them either one pesticide another pesticide or the control which is just some oil that they used to deliver the pesticides like vegetable oil or something wasn't it (laughs) yeah corn oil oil, yeah (laughs) and uh, they then measured them after 24 hours, 7 days, 14 days and 28 days to see what was going on with them. And they recorded all their movement variables over that time as well. Well, let's get to the kind of the crux of this. One of the pesticides that they were given, fipronil, the dragons that had had that, that had been dosed with that, in the mornings particularly, 
they were less active. So something about being dosed with fipronil makes bearded dragons less active in the morning. And we're talking like quite a lot less active. They're like about at most half as active yeah. as in doing half as much moving around as a lizard which hadn't been dosed with this pesticide. The sort of suggestion was this morning, morning time is particularly critical because it's, you know, you think about lizards, they're waking up, they're getting up to temperature, moving into a nice basking spot, getting ready to sort of go. So there's questions whether that sort of morning time is actually a really critical time for these lizards as well as, you know, having this effect from the pesticide. Yeah, and you wonder why they're less active in the morning. Are they just waking up feeling rough because they've been poisoned? I mean, one of the suggestions was it is part of that metabolization process. Is they're, they're having a tough time metabolizing or clearing this pesticide, right? You know, they're, they're yeah. instead of using their energy for going out and about and foraging and living lizard lives, they're having to expend increased energy trying to uh, deal with this pesticide that's in their system. Poor little lizards. Yeah, and there, there was some other sort of scary stuff. You know, toxins from that particular pesticide, fipronil, are actually stored in body fat. And there's some suggestion that when they're sort of getting rid of this stuff, it's just being stored in their body fat. And then when they come to call upon those reserves later, it might be re-released back right. into their bodies and then start impacting them again. Yeah, so this was basically we had this scenario of these lizards being dosed on day one then sort of examining them over 28 days and you it takes time for the pesticide to be metabolized right the real concern is you've got this what do they call it there's a special word for it but basically this product of the metabolization process which is increasing over this entire period which is you know what you're saying it's being you know there's a delay between them being dosed and then the potentially harmful thing coming out of it as part of this metabolization process and it not going away it sticks in there and not just that it's sticking in it's, yeah, as you say sticking into the uh potentially into the fat stores too yeah yeah and that then you think okay well that tallies up with a lack of movement potentially if they are having to deal with this and also if maybe fat stores or energy stores are sort of bulked up by this you know it's, it's got something in there that shouldn't be in there like maybe that's reducing the efficiency of energy release from those areas as well maybe yeah. just slowing them down in general yeah yeah and it sounds like reptiles in general are not as good at detoxifying things from their bodies as say mammals it was a very slow process anyway so that kind of yeah everything further complicates the situation sounds like it has like a longer legacy because they've got this more efficient in some ways more efficient like metabolism yeah they're way better at getting energy from fats yeah and that probably just means that they're like more conservative and hanging on to stuff in general, I guess. And then if it's more conservative and hanging on to things that aren't necessarily good for them, you've got this, you know, month-long deleterious effect from a toxin. And it was quite striking. They had the sort of minutes moved at these different time periods versus the levels of this, like, metabolized pesticide and almost, you know, mirror images as one goes up, activity drops. Like it's, <laughs> it's kind of scary how well reflective an increase in one leads to a decrease in the movement. 
Yeah. Yeah, I really, I was so impressed by this because the fact that they, you know, measuring the kind of body things, it was actually cool because when I first started reading it, I was like, wow, they've caught up wild bearded dragons and then they're going to test them and then test them again later. Like, how are they going to find them again? (laughs) It's like, oh, they're using the tag, the radio tags for that. And it's like, oh, but they're also measuring their movement via accelerometry as well. Like, it's really, really in-depth look at how toxins affect movement and behavior. And I think it's a kind of dynamic which... uh, yeah, it's just a cool use of radio transmitters because I think a lot of the times with small animals, you're limited by the battery life yes. of what you can stick on them. I and mean, beardies aren't that small. They can probably get away with quite a lot. But it's kind of cool because it, even if you've only got like two weeks of tracking of an animal, you can kind of start to get some inferences about things that affect that affect them even in a small window of time yeah. r- rather than trying to get like... Yeah, yeah you shift the scale of your question get, basically, yeah. Exactly, yeah, which is just really exciting. Yeah, I was really impressed by this. Um, they did well to catch so many and sort of... Well, it was only 16 lizards, wasn't it? But I guess, you know, once you start factoring in the fact that that's probably 16 radio transmitters, it starts to get quite pricey. So, well, um, and, and doing all the sort of post-blood work on them and stuff. Like, although they didn't find any differences in the blood necessarily, it, it's still work that needs to be done to check that stuff. And to be honest, I think that's what makes this paper more interesting in my books, is we've seen pesticide studies or toxin studies with... Uh, either changes to blood or changes to body condition or, or mass and things like that. And we talk about, okay, so the toxins aren't killing the creatures, but maybe there's sublethal costs, like a loss of body mass and stuff. Well, here's something that's even more sublethal than that, that you can't even see it in body condition over the space of a month. And they highlight in the discussion that, well, okay, but real world, we're not talking about a one-off spread of pesticide and then a month of having a rougher time and maybe heading towards recovery after that. What happens when this sort of stuff is chronic, when it's being introduced to the environment sort of again and again and again? Like, do these impacts sort of mount up? It plays into this, well, you know, does at some point it get too much? Yeah, it's scary to think about. And I mean... I mean, it probably doesn't come as a surprise to anyone that squirting pesticides all over lizards is actually bad for them. But yeah, when you think about the ramifications in terms of, yeah, that that reduced activity, it it goes back to what we were talking about with the crocodiles last week. It's like, how much change to their behavior can these animals adapt to? Yes. Some, but there becomes a point where it'll reach that tipping point and you've just got an animal which is not doing enough to survive. Yeah. And the trick is, if you're not looking, you have no idea when that tipping point's going to be. And with something like this, it takes a study of this detail to even see the effects because you wouldn't potentially see them through differences in mortality maybe over the course of a year so yeah <laughs> you know by the time you notice it's having a bad effect it's already had a really bad effect this is great i love the sort of foresight in this study yeah me too me too and um yeah it's kind of another element to it's just another dynamic to um study of reptiles which is just cool to see like although it's a depressing one just the realm of pesticides is important and um yeah it's novel and that just makes it very curious at least to yeah. me yeah sort of in a similar vein to parasites although i feel like although we did do that parasite paper which was to do with parasites and pesticides being synergistic in frogs didn't mm-hmm. we so yeah i'm sure there's more of this stuff to come oh definitely and hopefully yeah I mean, maybe it's a, a step... Yeah, I don't know. It's difficult, isn't it? We need to feed the human population, but spraying pesticides all over all the wild animals doesn't seem like a very good shout. No, that's the kicker. There's a, two very good motivators for finding a uh, middle ground that doesn't do any harm. Yeah. 
Yeah. Hey, so uh, I think that's about it for uh, bearded dragons and pesticides, isn't it? Have you got anything else you want to add? No. There's more detail in the study that we haven't sort of touched on in terms of the specific measurements they did and things. So, I mean, I do encourage people to look at the paper if they care about the, uh, you know, the ins and outs of measuring pesticide impact on bearded dragons. And the broad stuff we've said. But, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> There's always more. Have you got any other any other business for this episode? Nope, I have no any other business. Okay, so I have a little bit of other business. I was alerted to this article which came out, it's a few weeks ago now actually, but it was an article about Bolivian river dolphins, you know, those like... Those pink ones. The pink mm-hmm, ones, mm-hmm. yeah. And um, there was a video emerged of some of these Bolivian river dolphins and they were playing with a Benny anaconda, which is Unectes beniensis. It's this... When you say playing... Well, yeah, you know exactly how it's going to go. Yeah, now. I mean, these are dolphins. Yeah, nothing really plays with a dolphin that ends well for the animal, really. Dolphin uses all other creatures as playthings, potentially. <laughs> yeah, it's like if you heard there was like a daddy long legs playing with some kids, you'd be like, it's not going to end well for the daddy long legs. It's a very similar situation yeah. here for this yeah. Benny Anaconda. So... Yeah, basically, some biologists were observing the dolphins and they're related to the Amazon River dolphins, but they're just the sort of um, Bolivian ones. And not much is known about them. They're kind of mysterious. They live in very murky water. They only come up to go breathe. And the rest of the time, they're sort of hidden in these sort of brown, muddy depths. And the Benny anaconda is this like slightly smaller anaconda species that lives in Bolivia. And yeah, the researchers were filming the dolphins and they noticed that the dolphins were doing something strange on the surface. And so they sort of started taking pictures. And when they got back and developed the pictures, developed can you the imagine? Pictures. Went yeah, into the dark yeah, room. No. <laughs> yeah, they went into the dark room. Bloop, bloop, bloop. They were digital pictures and they noticed when they perhaps reviewed? they zoomed in. Reviewed. Examined? Reviewed. Enhance. And they noticed that the dolphins were actually playing with an anaconda, but they weren't playing with it with the intent of eating with it. They were just sort of like mucking about with it, passing it around, chucking it about. Sometimes they sort of synchronized together and carried it downstream. And sometimes they just sort of bashed it around by themselves. And one thing they noticed was that the adult males in the group were sexually excited by this playing with the uh, anaconda. And, uh, They weren't sure why any of this happened. Why does anything happen with dolphins? One thing they thought was that maybe um, the adults could have been using this anaconda as an opportunity to teach the youngsters about anacondas or just, you know, getting their (laughs) weird dolphin kicks off it. Yeah, it around. Yeah. Thankfully for the anaconda, it was dead. Yeah. (laughs) And it died. It likely, they suggested it likely died during the encounter. Yeah. A, A small mercy. Yeah, just awful. Just awful. Yeah. Not an interaction you'd expect to, like, dolphin and anaconda. That's not on anybody's yeah. bingo card, I don't think. <laughs> no, pretty rough. Yeah. 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 And in the photo, <laughs> I've only just taken a good look at the photo, and <laughs> it's just a dolphin with, like, a fin out of the water. So it just looks like a pink blob with a fin, and you can see, like, a bit of anaconda hooked over it. But then the dolphin in the foreground, it's just... <laughs> It's the dolphin's member just protruding out of the water. I mean, that is a horrible day for the anaconda. But anyway, I couldn't let that pass by. You know, <laughs> no, of, co- of course not. <laughs> I thought you'd be really, really eager to hear about that. So there it is. 
poor, poor anaconda, and it's I know <laughs> horrible running with a bunch of. Bunch Why of do they have gruesome, to be sexually excited? Gruesome Bolivian <laughs> river dolphins. Why did they have to make it sexual? That's what makes it so bad. Ah, oh, just awful. Dolphins, mate. Just, just why awful. dolphins? That's... Yeah. So, uh, <sighs> that is what it is. That's all the other business I've got for today. Oh, good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so if you want to get in touch with us, you can. We're at herphighlights at gmail.com or we're on social media. You can also find me and Ben. And if you've got any questions or anything like that, or you've heard something we, you think we've got wrong, let us know. We'll always correct ourselves. And yeah, I think that's about all that remains to be said, isn't it? Yeah, I think so. I think it's just uh, thanks for listening. Yep, thank you for listening.